Well, good morning. Good morning. And happy Mother's Day to our sweet mothers here. Um, so thankful, so, so thankful that we have godly mothers in our, in our church who uh, just desire to point everybody to Jesus. We need more mothers like that in our world, certainly in our nation, and um, so thankful that we have exemplary women here. We um, are going to start in Psalm 19, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm number 19. And today's sermon will be more like teaching time than it will be like preaching time. Last week's sermon was a preaching sermon. This week's sermon is a teaching sermon. (laughs) So uh, you might feel a little bit like you're in a Sunday school class, but without the interaction of a Sunday school class. Sorry about that. But that's just the way it is. And today will be a little bit more of a wild ride through Deuteronomy. Uh, I suspect some of you may blush today, okay? Uh, So you can look forward to that. (laughs) Uh, I also want to just remind you um, that we do have a setup in the coin uh, where anybody, for whatever reason, who doesn't feel comfortable being in this room can sit in there and the TV and the speakers are functional. And maybe that's something you might want to tell somebody who uh, might come to church that would it would be helpful for that person to know where that person could be outside of this room to still uh, be able to watch the message. So anyway, just want to let you know that that's available. Well, what is a holy mindset today as we enter into Deuteronomy chapters 22 and 23? Uh, really interesting chapters uh, that we're going to walk through today. Let's get our mindset in the right place. Let's be holy about the way we think about the law. And to do that, we're going to read a couple passages, starting in Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. Listen to what this says about God's law and God's commands. The law of Yahweh the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. If you just take the first half of that verse and hang on to it today, That'll be helpful. But let's continue. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Those are great words concerning the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God. I want us also to think about what Jesus said in Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But Matthew 22, 34 to 40. It says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? There's a lot of commandments in the law. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus said. He went on to say, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this astounding statement, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul and each of the commands in the law of God teach us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. An amazing statement. I also want to read to you Galatians 3.19. 
Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, says, Why the law then? It's a good question. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions, it says. If we weren't sinners, there would be no law. And if we weren't sinners, let me tell you, the law would, if there was a command put forth, it would be so simple. But because we are sinners and we find very, very creative ways to rebel against the Lord who created us, the law is confusing sometimes. The law contains all kinds of things in there that we look at and and we think, wow, that's interesting. Why is that added? Because of transgressions because of sin, because of how mangled and nasty our sin is and the way it plays out in our lives. And today we're going to see some of those. We are going to see some commands in the law and we think, why is that there? Because of transgressions. That's why it's there. And because it teaches us how to love God and how to love neighbor and it shows us God's perfections. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 22. And as you turn there, I want to read to you a passage from this wonderful commentary by Daniel Block. Listen to what he has to say in light of these things I've just been discussing. He says, Contemporary readers are faced with two principal alternatives when faced with texts like Deuteronomy 22 and 23. Here are your two options. He says, one, interpret these documents as cultural fossils of a bygone era with no relevance whatsoever for the issues that readers face today. Or number two, attempt to understand the permanent values reflected here and find contemporary ways of applying those values. We cast our vote for the latter. Those are good words. Let's pray before we get into Deuteronomy 22 and ask the Holy Spirit to make application in our lives. Father, we thank you for the text in front of us today. We thank you for your law. We thank you that by your law we can see perfect righteousness, that we can see holiness, that we can see purity. We also thank you that by the law we can see our sin. We can see how we haven't measured up to your standard and we can be crushed under its weight, that we might be pushed to Jesus. Today, give us great insight into your law to see your perfections. And also, give us a crushing weight to our pride that we would find ourselves, at the end of the message, sitting at the feet of our Savior, relying on His merits as He lived out the law perfectly. Lord, I ask that though I am one of these sinners, both by nature and by choice, that You would use me, that You would anoint me to preach Your Word, and that by Your Spirit, we would understand more about how we are to see the world, how we are to understand who you are and understand who we are, that these words would change the way we live our week and the rest of our days for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your notes, today would be a particularly good day to have your notes in front of you. Uh, So grab that bulletin with those notes there, help you follow along a bit. We're going to talk about how to love God and how to love neighbor through sundry laws. Your heading in your Bible might say sundry laws, and that's a word we don't use very often, sundry. I'm starting to use it more. I kind of like that word. Uh, But it basically means varied or various. It means eclectic, a bunch of laws put together that have a general theme that's similar but are varied when you look at them in detail. They, are, they differ from one another. They come together to create a mosaic, if you will, which is kind of punny considering this is the mosaic law, right? Um, that this is a, a varied grouping of laws, yet they are all teaching us how to love God and love neighbor. And let's start together in chapter 22, verse 1. Spoken through Moses, God tells His people, the Israelites, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. 
Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment, and you shall do likewise with anything by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way or on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall surely, you shall certainly help him to raise them up. We see a great application for loving neighbor here in the first few verses of chapter 22. The idea here is to love neighbor in this context means to care for your neighbor's property as though it was your own. Notice that if you see the ox or the donkey, whatever property it may be, going astray, you are to go get that property for your neighbor and bring it back to your neighbor. And if you don't know the neighbor, take it in as your own. Let that animal join your animals and don't set it aside and don't neglect it, but treat it as one of your own so that one day by God's grace, you can rightfully restore your neighbor's property to him. And isn't that a great principle? That to love neighbor means to care for his stuff as though it's your stuff. We would do well today to consider our neighbor's property in such a way and not say, well, that's his problem. Notice what God told the Israelites twice in these two verses. You are not allowed to neglect. Not allowed. Because love demands that you pay attention to your neighbor's property and that you take care of it. An interesting passage. We're going to skip verse 5. We'll come back to verse 5. Don't you worry. But uh, verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs uh, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Interesting. Isn't God's law specific about stuff? (laughs) Birds, a bird's nest. What do you do with a bird and her eggs? Well, notice that God gives very comprehensive scenarios. If you come upon this nest on the way, in a tree, on the ground, no matter where you find this bird, this mother bird and her young, this is what you are to do. You are to practice good stewardship. Take the eggs, but don't take the mother. Remember, this isn't a human mother who has a human relationship with her young. But instead, God is giving the children of Israel these young and the eggs for their food, and yet they are to let the mother go because this is called conservation, good conservation. They aren't to go kill all the adults of a species and wipe out a species, but they're to take care of the adults, the ones that can reproduce again, and and take that fruit of their loins as your own food. That's a good thing to do. Comprehensive law. I was talking to a friend earlier this week on Marco Polo. It's a new thing. It's a relatively new thing where you can talk face-to-face. It's like sending a video text message to one another. And he's a friend from Bible college, and we're both in our 30s now and uh, doing things that suburban dads in their 30s do, like power wash. And he was outside power washing and sending me a video because that's exciting, I guess, at this stage in life. I never knew this would happen to me, but it, it did. And uh, he was out power washing, and we were just talking about things, and I was telling him about the challenging chapters that I had to preach this week. And as he was power washing, there in his bush was a bird with her eggs. And he wanted to power wash right there. And he said, well, does your law say anything about that? (laughs) And he had no idea. And I said, yes, yes, it does. Uh, Now, of course, we're not Israelites, and this isn't a, a binding command on we Christians today. But isn't it interesting that there it is, a principle of how to care for animals, God's creation, and how we can love God by the way we care for animals, not to say, well, what's not for us, we can just do whatever we want with these animals, but that we need to care for them as God's creation. I don't know what he ended up doing with it, but I told him I'd use them as a sermon illustration anyway, and uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Verse 8, look at verse 8 with me. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. It's helpful to know a little bit about how these homes were structured, just real basic. 
a lot of houses in Israel during this time had basically three levels. The first level was for animals. You had a raised house, and at the very first level, at ground level, you would have grazing animals and mammals and ox and donkey, all that stuff, that would be on the lower level and it would provide shade for them. The second level of the house would be the main living quarters. That's where families would reside most of the time. And then the third level is just the roof. And the roof was used for all sorts of things. You could have large gatherings there if the house was strong enough. You could go up there to relax. We see, uh, remember Peter and his vision that we just went through in the book of Acts. He was up there hanging out on the roof. And so it it was used for a variety of, of things. And what we're told in the law here, what the Israelites rather were told in the law here, is that if you are to have this roof that you're going to use for these purposes, you should build a parapet, a rail. You should put something up that would protect anyone from falling off. Just another way of loving neighbor, to think ahead, to be considerate. Love implores some sort of foresight, doesn't it? To think of others more highly than yourself. And even when you're building your own home, the Israelites were to think of others and what might happen. Love demands consideration and foresight, and we see that in that simple command. Let's keep going. Let's read verses 9 through 12. It says, "'You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard which will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together.' You shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Interesting. That's about all you can say to those, isn't it? Interesting. Gardens and garments for God's glory. Details for Israel as to how they were to live this out. I want to mention, um, I think I've, I've mentioned to you before from this pulpit that my wife and I enjoy watching The West Wing, an older show. Uh, there's a moment that's pretty famous in The West Wing. It's from early on, I think it may have been season one, where there was a woman who was in the press room who was known for being very conservative, a journalist who was very pro-life. And of course, The West Wing, it was a popular TV show on a major network, so of course that administration, that presidential administration was very liberal. Uh, You wouldn't make it eight seasons with a conservative administration on a TV show. And uh, the president, played by Martin Sheen, he noticed the journalist was there, this conservative woman, and he calls her out in front of everybody, a real dramatic moment. And, you know, he says, you who are so anti-gay marriage and anti-abortion, do you wear fabrics that are mixed together? Do you eat shellfish and pork? And he goes on through the law given to the Israelites and basically says, if you do all of those things, you know, if you don't wear the right clothes, if you don't abstain from the right foods, well then, who are you to say that there is any morality in life, basically? A ridiculous argument, a very bad argument, a very easily refuted argument, if you just have not one credit hour, but one single hour in a Bible college or in a Sunday school class, you should be able to refute that silly, silly argument. But it's an argument that's made a lot in our culture. When we profess something uh, concerning morality, people will often point back to the Old Testament. In fact, our last president, Barack Obama, did this pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, well, look, if you're wearing clothes that are made from two types of fabric, well, then you have no uh, reason whatsoever. You have no foundation to make any moral claims. That's just not the case. We recognize that within the law, there were several commands, many commands given to the Israelites specifically that were given to this people that God chose. He gave them a land. He gave them a community, and He gave them laws in their community. And when we look at things like this, these, these commands, these precepts about sowing our vineyard with two kinds of seed, verse 9, well, what's the point of that? First of all, we have to admit there's great mystery with it. But secondly, we should also recognize that God was setting His people apart in the world. These were particular commands that didn't hurt His people. They, in fact, as far as the agricultural practices go, over time it really helped the people. 
And in the moment, as they're wondering, why are we doing this? Well, it's setting them apart from all the other nations. Even the, the clothes they would wear would set them apart. And they were to be very particular in the way that they did it as to honor the Lord and His commands. There's great practical fruition from these practices, but there's also just great worship and being set apart as God's people. I want to show you a picture of this garment that's being spoken of in verses um, 11 and 12. It's called a talit or a talit. I don't really know how it's supposed to be pronounced. They're Hebrews. We'll call it talit. That sounds more Hebrew. You've probably seen that before, haven't you? He's got the little yarmulke on his head and then this uh, poncho-looking thing. Um, this is called a talit, and you see his tassels there, and it's very common, particularly in Israel, for men to wear that garment. It's used today in various contexts, and it comes right here where it says, you shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. And as the Israelite men wore that in their culture, it was specific to them. It set them apart. That's God's purpose in this. There's another command about gardens in chapter 23, the next chapter. Look at the last two verses of chapter 23. Verses 24 and 25, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. It says, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you shall pluck the heads with your hand but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Another command concerning gardens. They were communal. Think of uh, neighborhood uh, gardens that a lot of neighborhoods, uh, subdivisions make today. It's a similar concept. Now, they weren't allowed to take anything out of that garden and take it home with them. It was just for the time being. But it was God's way of setting up a system to, again, show love for neighbor and to make sure there wasn't anyone hungry in Israel. If you were traveling, if you were walking across the country and came through a neighbor's uh, garden or vineyard, you were free to eat while you were there, to get your full of grapes, it says. And if you remember in the New Testament... Jesus, Jesus and His disciples did this in Matthew 12. They were walking through and plucking heads of grain and eating the heads of grain. And the Pharisees got really upset about that, not because they were breaking the actual law. You see that what the law says there in Deuteronomy 23. But that they were breaking the cultural code that became such a law that they were doing it on the Sabbath. You can't harvest wheat on the Sabbath. Harvesting wheat's kind of a stretch, isn't it? Just plucking grain heads. And Jesus basically said, go away. They're doing, they're doing fine. Let's uh, continue in chapter 23. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Switching from gardens and garments to slaves. It says this, you shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Masters and slaves. Interesting. It says here that a slave who comes to the Israelites, and notice it doesn't say a Hebrew slave. This isn't a reference to a brother, a Hebrew brother, but someone from even a surrounding nation there in Mesopotamia, even a pagan, comes to you because he's been abused by his slave. Keep him. Don't send him back. Now, masters and slaves were to have very specific relationships, and you can just jot this down. We won't turn there, but Exodus 21, Exodus chapter 21 is going to give you a lot of insight into what that relationship should look like between masters and slaves in Israel. And in this case, someone had broken that, those uh, commands regarding the relationship and abused a slave. And what does love say as you view this runaway slave as a neighbor? How do you love that neighbor? Remember, someone who's a slave, someone who's not Jewish, he's still your neighbor, God says. And how do you love him? Love says, don't send him back to that abuse. Don't put him back in that situation. But love says, take him in and let him pick out his own town in Israel. That's astounding. Let him choose where he wants to live and accept him in the community. Don't treat him like a pagan slave once he's in the community. They're to love on him. 
He's to be someone who's protected and cared for. There's a lot of talk today about sanctuary cities in America. Well, this is a holy sanctuary city in Israel. God established sanctuary cities in this specific case, and it was to be done purely in this way. Covenant commitment, which is love, was to be shown by caring for this runaway slave who was mistreated by his master. In verses 19 through 23 of chapter 23, we won't read through those, but in that section, we hear about a couple of different commands. One is to not charge interest to a fellow countryman. If you had some sort of wealth established that God had given you and you were able to lend to others, you could charge interest to foreigners, but you could not charge interest to fellow Hebrews, your fellow countrymen, God said. It was a way of loving your neighbor by looking out for his financial well-being. No interest. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> we, we have on our commercials, no interest for X number of months. Well, in Israel, a Jew lending to a Jew... No interest ever. And do you remember what we read earlier in Deuteronomy about every seven years you're to release the debts? And then uh, every 50 years there's a year of jubilee where everything is forgiven, everybody takes a, a year off of work. God's law is good. That would be good. No interest charged to fellow Hebrews. And then it goes on to talk about another issue in that section, talking about vows, vows made to God. And it says that if anyone makes a vow, if there's a promise that comes out of someone's mouth to God, that person is to keep it. I just want to show you one verse in this section, verse 23, 2323 of Deuteronomy. Look at what God says about making promises. It says, "'You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips.'" just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Be careful to do what you promise to do. Now, there's a principle for us, isn't there? There are lots of people that make promises all the time and say, I'll do this, I'll go there, I'll, I'll do that, and don't follow through. We should be people of our word as Christians. We should be people who mean what we say and say what we mean. Here recently, my neighbor across the street's been working on his deck, and there have been a couple times I said, oh yeah, I'll be over later, and my feet just haven't made it across the street. I should probably find a way over there, shouldn't I? If you're going to make a promise, you keep it. If you think about the book of Judges, remember Jephthah? Remember that man Jephthah in the book of Judges? He was fighting the Ammonites, and he asked God for strength to defeat the Ammonites, and he said, I will make a sacrifice of the first thing I see if you give me victory over the Ammonites. It says that God's Spirit was with him. God's Spirit strengthened him. And what was the first thing he saw but his own daughter? Now, that puts a law-abiding Israelite in quite a jam, doesn't it? Be careful to perform what comes out of your mouth, the law says. Wow, what a story. You should read through that. And remember that the Spirit was with Jephthah, and he still made a rash vow. So we today, as Christians who have the Spirit with us 24-7, 365, we still have to fight this, struggle with this, that we wouldn't have loose lips, that we wouldn't make willy-nilly promises, but that we would be people of our word. Jesus elaborated on this aspect of the law. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 12. You can jot it down and I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33, Jesus elaborated on those who are under the law, what they will be judged by as far as vows and promises are concerned. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of, which, out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Verse 36, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words 
you will be condemned. Those who seek to earn their righteousness under the law, every idle, careless word will be scrutinized. They'll have to give an account for it in the day of judgment. Wow. Weighty. Weighty. We can think about the words that we say just really lightly, but God doesn't. As Christians, those who have been forgiven of any rash vow we may have made, all of our broken promises, there's forgiveness in Christ. Let's seek to be people of our word. Now, we just covered a lot of sundry laws, and the rest of the message is going to take passages from 22 and 23, pulling various passages together that are mainly under the same topic. One really non-confrontational, one really just easily accepted topic in our day and age, gender. No one has a question about gender in our society today, do they? Well, let's start off with something fiery. Chapter 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. It says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a, put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, all the details of how this played out in Israel are not known. As far as what may have been the problem in their culture, um, was it a pagan practice? We, we don't know all the details of that. But the principle that's there as to what God is forbidding is quite clear, isn't it? The people were not to blur these distinctions that God has created. The people were not to seek out to confuse man, male and female. They weren't to go out and and say that anybody can be whatever gender they want to be because God didn't have any purpose in assigning you a gender. He just gave you one. He spun a wheel, flipped a coin, whatever it may be, and this is what you got, but you can go on and correct it. No, God was very specific in His creation of every human being. God had great intention behind every single person who's ever lived, and they were not to blur the lines between male and female. I struggled to come up with any type of contemporary application for that, huh? Uh, is there any cultural significance? I think the application is quite clear. Now, in the following passages we're going to look at, um, we're going to be discussing the fallen tendency of males to abuse females, men and women, their relationships, but specifically males, the ones to whom God has given strength to serve they so often pervert that strength to abuse, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 22. Verse 13 says, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her, verse 14, and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin, etc., etc. You can read the rest on your own time. Um, it's dealing with that scenario, that a man marries a woman and then doesn't like her anymore, doesn't want to be with her anymore, and says, you know what? Actually, she was impure. She was unchaste. There was lying that was going on when this woman was given to me. And she's actually, as the text reads, not a virgin. The man, it says in verse 13, turned against her. He chose to shame her publicly in order to get out of the marriage he didn't want to be in. Well, the text goes on to talk about proof had to be provided. And because this was a different time, a different culture, they were able to show proof for this sort of thing. And you can Google that later, perhaps, to figure that out. Um, but in that culture, there was a way of proving if a young woman who was married was a virgin or not. And there are different sins potentially at play here. For instance, the man could be telling the truth. The man could be saying, look, I was told that this young woman had never been with a man, and it's not the case. This has all been a lie. And there were certain consequences for that. Yet the man in this first scenario that's presented to us could be lying. He could just be wanting to get out of the marriage he no longer wanted to be in. So there are different punishments for the different types of sins. 
if the woman actually had defiled her father's house, and that's the way the Old Testament speaks of these sorts of things. That's the way God's view on morality is articulated, that the woman didn't just do something wrong. She didn't just make a mistake, but she defiled her father's house. And if that was the case, then she was deserving of the death penalty. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, If this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That type of sin, fornication, sexual immorality, is reckoned as evil by God. And notice the communal aspect of this, that not in the man that she just married, not in his city, but she was to go back to her own city, and those who knew her, knew her family, knew her father, they were the ones who were to perform the execution. Do you think this would have curbed sin a little bit in Israel? knowing that this was going to happen? That's part of what the law does, is it curbs sin in a community. And how painful would it be as members of a community to be the ones that have to carry out the punishment for that sin? Remember, Psalm 19, God's law is perfect. Now, if the man lied and this woman was actually chaste, well, let's look at verse 18 and see what his punishment is. Starting at verse 18, it says, The elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him or beat him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel, and she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all of his days. If he lied about this, if he sought to publicly shame someone who was innocent, his own wife, he was to be beaten find and permanently joined to his wife. Now, some of you might be thinking, how is it right that a permanent marriage would be punishment? All you men, don't talk. It's Mother's Day, okay? How could it be that being joined to her all of your days is punishment? Well, um, the first thing I want to say before I explain this in a little more detail, the first thing I want to say to you don't question God. That's the first place you got to start. When you read something in the law, if we believe the law is perfect, if we believe His precepts are true, if we believe His commands are pure, if it's sweeter than honey, finer than gold, don't start out from a position of, that's not right. God needs to prove Himself to me. Because if you're questioning God, let me ask you, by what standard do you question God? First place to start. But now, as you think through how this might play out in their context in Israel, because remember, this isn't spoken to us today directly. We are indirect recipients of this law that was given directly to the people of Israel. If we were to think about their context, and as I just spoke of with the woman's punishment, it was very communal. It was a community-led, community-governed society that everybody in the society was involved in one another's lives in really intimate ways. And if that man were to go on and to, con to continue to shame his wife, to abuse his wife, it couldn't go on very long because the community was right there and involved. The community were the ones that God gave as stewards to perform punishments for sins. They were to watch that man. They were to mark that man from that day forward to keep an eye on him and to make sure he cared for his wife in a loving way, to make sure that he performed the duties of a godly husband. That's what the community was there for. And so it's not like he could just go on and this woman's now trapped in a terrible marriage to a terrible guy. But instead, that man has now been publicly marked in the community. And she was to be taken care of all of her days. Let me read to you again from Block's commentary. He does such a good job articulating these things from the law. He said, While modern readers may find the last prescription troublesome, this requirement aims for, rehabilit for a rehabilitative outcome. Because the matter is resolved in a public court of law, the people in the community become the guarantors, I don't know how to say that, the ones who guarantee of the man's good behavior. 
Because this was dealt with in the public square, from that moment forward, the people were to guarantee his good behavior, and she was to be cared for. Notice that God doesn't jump to divorce, that God doesn't jump to, well, just split up this union that I have made. God doesn't jump to that like we might. Instead, God looks to restore, doesn't he? Isn't God's heart for restoration, for rehabilitation, for changing, making all things new? And he would do that through his people in this case. The next thing I want us to see regarding gendered behavior, look at verse 22. It says very simply, if a, man is, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. This is just very simply put, adultery. And adultery was deserving of the death penalty in Israel, that those who profaned the marriage bed were to receive the death penalty. Look too at verse 30, the very last verse of chapter 22. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt, it says. Now, his father's wife does not refer most likely to his biological mother. Um, despite what Freud might say, there wasn't really uh, a lot of intention for men to do that in Deuteronomy uh, in that time. But instead, it's perhaps a father's past wife, perhaps a uh, father's concubine, someone that he had in his home. There were polygamous marriages at that time, and a man was not to take his father's wife, it says. But he was to uh, find his own woman and not profane the marriage bed. Interesting. Also, you can make a note in chapter 23, verses 17 and 18, it talks about temple prostitution. That's another form of adultery that the pagans like to practice. Guy uh, disguised in uh, spiritual practice, it was just adultery. And all adultery was deserving of the death penalty in Israel. In verses 23 through 29 of Deuteronomy 22, this is a great Mother's Day message, isn't it? In verses 23 through 29 of uh, this chapter, there are a bunch of premarital scenarios given. Premarital scenarios where uh, in two out of the three, a woman is betrothed or engaged to another man. Uh, First thing you need to know is that being betrothed is similar to being engaged in our day and age, but it's different. Being betrothed uh, was a step closer to marriage than our engagements are. So many of our engagements today are just, you know, really flowery publicity, Facebook photo, happy whatever things. They're very shallow in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of people who are already living like they're married uh, even before they get engaged, and so the whole thing gets convoluted. But in Israel, it was... Um, very straightforward that a man and a woman, when brought together, would enter a stage where the woman was betrothed to that man, meaning they are going to get married, that that woman is his and he is hers, that there was that close of a relationship at that point, that it wasn't something that could be um, you know, easily reversed. They had taken a huge step forward in that day. So it wasn't perhaps as shallow as some engagements today are, but it was quite serious. It was a publicly binding engagement. And in these scenarios, we, we find what the uh, punishment should be for a, an engagement of that nature being broken. And the first scenario that's presented here, and we won't read through these, I'll just um, read them or read about them to you. You can look at verses 23 and 24 for that first scenario where one who is betrothed, um, someone who's in a public, publicly binding engagement, a woman, is messing around with a man in a city. She and the man get together in a city. He takes her and they have a time of passion together. It says that they are to both receive the death penalty. Because they were in a city, if this was a violation of her, she would have called out and people would have heard, but instead, she can't claim that. No one heard her cry out. This was essentially an act of adultery because she was betrothed to another man, and they were to both receive the death penalty. The next situation is a betrothed girl who was violated by a man in a field. They're out in an open field and Though she screamed for help, there was no one there to help her, and that man who violated her is to receive the death penalty. 
not just because of the violation of her rights that God has given her, but because she belonged to another, because this was, again, essentially an act of adultery. He was to receive the death penalty. And the third scenario that's presented here, starting in verse 28, uh, it lists out a situation where there's a non-betrothed young woman who is violated by a man. It seems, because of the language that's here, if you look at verse 28, it says that he seizes her and lies with her. It seems like he did this by his own force and that she perhaps did not want to participate in what he was doing. Well, the punishment is no longer the death penalty as with the first two scenarios, but instead the punishment that is given here, verse 29, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Again, we might look at that and think, that's not right. He should receive a stricter punishment. But again, think of the context that they are in. They were living in a community. They were living in a place where a man had specific, or a husband rather, had very specific principles in front of him as to what it meant to love his wife. That if he were going to do this to a woman for one night of whatever he wanted, he had to know that from that point forward, he was to treat her as his wife. He was to take her in and to care for her. He was to pay the bride price to the father, and he was to care for her all of his days. Don't you think that would deter a man from just a moment of what he thought might be fun, something he thought might be good, that the community would bring to bear God's commands on him for how he is to treat a woman from that point forward, and that she was to be loved and cared for for the rest of her days. Interesting study, isn't it? God's law. See what I mean about it was added because of sin? And how sin complicates things? Joe, we'll wait till the end, okay? I'll I'll catch your question after, all right? Um, Now, the last part of the message today talks about exclusions from the assembly. And we'll look at the first part of 23 to close out the message today. Exclusions from the assembly and exclusion from the camps. God's assembly and God's camps. Now, the assembly and the camp were not the same place. When you see the word assembly in the book of Deuteronomy, this means the congregation. Much like we are gathered here together today, God's assembly would come together to hear from His law. They would come together to hear from God Himself through the prophets of their day. And it was where people wanted to be. They wanted to be in worship with their brothers and their sisters. And that's a critical aspect of all of this, because if they did not want to be in the assembly, then uh, exclusions from the assembly really don't mean anything. But it's where God's people wanted to be, where the Jewish people wanted to be to worship Yahweh. Now, the camp, uh, different than the assembly, the camp is a military thing. The camp is the military men that God set up for His nation, who protected Israel, who fought for Israel. That's what the assembly and the camp are. Make sure you keep those distinct. Now, as we look for the rules for the assembly and those who are excluded, there are several exclusions listed in the first few verses of chapter 23. I won't read some of them, okay? Again, back to the blushing aspect. Um, We're not going to make any mothers blush on Mother's Day. How about that? Uh, You can just read through those uh, maybe later. And there are, are reasons why certain people would be excluded from the assembly. You'll read through and see things and think, wow, why would anybody even be that way? Uh, you know, why would that person physically be in that condition so as to exclude them from the assembly? Well, there were pagan practices in their day that people would do certain things to their bodies to mutilate themselves, to mar the body that God had given them that would cause them to be excluded. There were eunuchs in those days. Jesus talked about eunuchs, and um, that would be just an interesting scenario where Certain people wouldn't be allowed in because of those decisions. And even some scholars believe, even if certain accidents happened that marred people's bodies in certain ways, even if it was an accident, those people wouldn't be allowed into the assembly. Because the assembly of God's people was to be marked by wholeness and purity and holiness 
And there are certain things that can happen to a person's body in this scenario that would cause him or her to be excluded from the assembling together of God's people. One of those things is being illegitimately born, and we don't know exactly what's intended by that phrase. There could be a variety of applications for being illegitimately born in those days. But some of those who are mutilated, some of those who were uh, born in an illegitimate way, they could not enter the assembly as well as ten generations. Or I guess it says in the tenth generation, then they could start, that family could start entering the assembly again. again. That means that all the way until those people's great-great-great-great, eight-great-grandkids, all the way until that point, they could not enter the assembly because of the importance of wholeness and purity and holiness in God's assembly. It talks about the Ammonites and the Moabites, that they were not allowed to enter the assembly. It references some harsh moments in Israel's history where these Ammonites and Moabites mistreated the Israelites. Therefore, those people were not allowed in. Can you imagine in our day with how much we are like so... You can't discriminate against anybody for any reason. Well, this is clear discrimination by God, isn't it? That those people are being punished through the generations for what they did. God takes their acts of sin quite seriously. And again, until the 10th generation, no Ammonite or Moabite was allowed to enter the assembly, the congregation of Israel. Yet for the Edomites and the Egyptians, they are uh, listed in uh, verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me of chapter 23. It says, "'You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you are an alien in his land.'" The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. The Edomites who come from Esau, Jacob and Esau, they are to be considered as brothers. And the Egyptians, they were, remember the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 plus years? They had a brothership, a kinship of sorts with them. And so after a couple of generations passed, they were allowed to enter into the assembly of God because of that kinship. Discrimination, godly discrimination about how Israel was to uh, guard the assembly. And then rules for the camp. This is in verses 10 through 14, that military camp. There were certain rules there concerning bodily functions. And those bodily functions are not immoral acts. They're not uh, moral failures in and of themselves, but God considered some things that the human body did to be impurities in the camp of Israel. And if those impurities were to be found among God's military in the camp, that that would be considered uh, unrighteous. And so there were certain things that the men in the camp had to do to ceremonially clean themselves before they were allowed back into the camp. And uh, that's just another interesting passage that we won't read word for word. But I do want to show you verse 14, chapter 23, verse 14. You might think, again, um, just why? Why would God, these, these normal bodily functions, why would God do this and talk about them that way? Look at verse 14. It says, Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, Therefore, your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Two things to take away from that verse, big ideas for today, just from that one verse. God is here, and he is holy. God is omnipresent. He's not locked into one space like we are. But in this universe, we can say God is there. He's there. Is He here with us now? Yes. Is He going to be with you in your car on your way home? Yes. His eyes go to and fro through the whole earth. He sees all. God is there. And the second thing, He is holy. Now that encompasses a lot of ideas, but let me just give a couple to you. God being holy means these things. One, He makes the rules. He sets the standard. He has all authority within His purity to outline what is right and what is wrong. And He is the one who gets to say what the punishment is. He is the one who gets to set the, the judgment for each one. 
So he is there. He is here. He is everywhere. And he is holy, meaning he has set these standards in Israel. And again, thinking about what we would consider basic bodily functions. If he calls them impure, then guess what? They're impure. If he told these people at that time that those things were unholy, then those people at that time were to recognize them as unholy. And as they did what was right to ceremonially cleanse themselves and to keep things right in the camp, God would be pleased. And if they did what was wrong, look at it again at the end of verse 14. If they did what was wrong, He will turn away from you. In all of the law, God is not just teaching us love for Him and love for neighbor so that we can or can, you know, go for it. You know, take what you want, discard what you want, or whatever, and just go for it. But for the Israelites, God gave them the law that they would walk closely with Him in the way that He prescribed, that they would have that relationship with Him in the way that He designed it, that they would obey and know more about Him and know more about themselves as they followed the law, that they would understand more and more about God's holiness and His authority and power, and they would understand more and more about their total insufficiency to do what's in there. Out of just the things we read today, you think the Israelites messed up on those things? Yeah, you better believe it. Do you think they slipped up sometimes and forgot, oh yeah, I didn't mix in the right fabric with whatever I was wearing? Yeah. Or that they forgot to, you know, with, with a bird, they were just really hungry and they saw that bird and they just went for it and they just ate it. Yeah. And then they thought after, oh yeah, that was law number 610. Don't eat the mother bird. I forgot about that one. Yeah, absolutely. They're fallen. They can't remember everything. They're not innately holy. And do you think there were also moments where they full well knew what was wrong and they did it anyway? Where they saw their neighbor's ox or donkey running away and they said, not today. I've had a bad day. I woke up on the wrong side of the cave. (laughs) And, And not today. I'm not going to love my neighbor. Absolutely. Maybe some of you woke up on the wrong side of the cave today. <laughs> but what, what's the standard here? The standard is God is. God is holy and we are to obey. Therefore, with that perspective, the Israelites were learning over and over again just how comprehensively holy God was and is. They were learning just how comprehensively sinful they were and we are. That's what the law does. It teaches us these things. And shouldn't we say with grateful hearts that we are, we are just amazed and thankful that we are no longer under this tutor, the schoolmaster of the law, standing there with its yardstick, whipping our knuckles over and over again, saying, you're doing it wrong, you're not good enough, you're doing it wrong, you're not good enough. But instead, that schoolmaster, when Jesus came, said, here's a more excellent way the new covenant, initiated by the blood of Christ, that we are no longer punished for our sins. We're no longer getting beaten and flogged like that man who sought to shame his wife. We no longer have a fine to pay. But Jesus took the beatings for us. Jesus paid the fine for us that we might walk away innocent from the public courts, that we might be free from the law, not from the eternal, unchanging morality that's in the law. There are great principles that we went over today for us to look at in our own lives and think about how we can apply God's morality in our lives today. But we are free from the specifics of the ceremony. We are free from the specifics of the community of Israel. We're free from all of that. And most importantly, we're free from the punishment we deserve that the law outlines. Because Jesus, as we sang, in Christ alone, in that, in that hymn, it talks about how He was in our place bearing the Father's wrath. And God has just wrath against our evil deeds. We deserve the death penalty like so many people we read about in the law today. And Jesus took the death penalty for us. 
that we would be free, given life, eternal, that we would be forever with our Creator, and that we can look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where there's no need for a law. Because why was the law added? Because of transgressions. Take away transgressions, we're free from the law eternally, and people live purely all the time. Don't you want to go there now? I hope you do. I hope you want it that bad. Because it's for you, Christian. It's given for you, Christian. It's yours. Lay hold of it and seek to take those things you're looking forward to and apply them today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Serve your king. Serve your king. Oh, and happy Mother's Day. You know, maybe next year we'll do a a themed Mother's Day message to make up for this one, all right? Um, Next year we'll go real sweet with the Mother's Day message, and maybe we'll preach the law again on Father's Day to really beat them down. Um, No, we'll we'll be sweet to the fathers too. I think that would be a good thing. So let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you so much for being the perfect father that you have ministered to us by your Spirit through your Word, that you have given us salvation by grace alone, that through faith in the finished work of Jesus, we're free from the penalty of the law, that He took it for us, that we may have life abundantly with You. Lord, we ask that each day we'd be grateful for this great salvation, and that we, as we read Your law and we see these things that we don't fully understand, and we think, how, how, God, how is that right, that we would first submit to what You have said? recognizing that regardless of what we think, you are right in all you do. Your law is perfect. It is holy and just and good. And that secondly, you would teach us to see what it is that you've prescribed, that we would understand more fully your righteous judgments, and that we would find application for today as we live our lives as stewards of this creation, as stewards of relationships that you've given us, as stewards of our bodies, that as we read so much about this in your law, we would see the application for today and care about how we live because you are the one who deserves to be honored in all things. And again, we say this along with the psalmist, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.